Hello, Olgeta, Bulavinaka, Talo Falava, warm Pacific greetings, and welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. My name is Eliora Malifa. In the second installment of our two part episode looking at the social media landscape in the Pacific, we continue our conversation with Nick McDonnell, Head of Public Policy in New Zealand and the Pacific Islands for Meta or Facebook, Dr. Amanda Watson, Research Fellow at the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and Joe Pitarai, PhD candidate in the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. We will flip it now um, and <laughs> talk about a sort of the use of social media and um, by governments, I guess. Um, and maybe I'll start with you, Jope. Um, how have you seen Pacific Island governments attempt to govern the use of social media? Well, initially, uh, initially their reaction was very uh, an overreaction. So, uh, and uh, sometimes I chuckle at it because they they saw it as a threat, and by they I mean generally most, if not. Yeah, majority of the Pacific Island countries. Samoa had threats about um, uh, what's called banning Facebook. I think uh, Nauru and Marshall Islands had similar instances. PNG had talked about legislation around that. Fiji, of course, there was so much uh, consternation about it from authority figures uh, because of the fact that they didn't see online discussions as a potential for civic engagement. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was one of the biggest losses because it was a turning point you know, in the Pacific, as you know, as people that have studied in the Pacific know fully well, there's a huge disconnect between leadership and people who are governed. And it was an opportunity where you could see or you could see that the governance structures were to move in a different way in bringing that closer. But unfortunately, it was an overreaction. But as quickly as it was a, an overreaction, there hasn't really been anything more than a few cases here and there for defamation or or small things of, about legislating. That's been their reaction about threats about either shutting down. Initially, it was, we'll remove social networking sites. And then when that created a significant backlash, they defaulted to uh, plans around legislating uh, against certain comments, discussions. And then it just became something that sort of died down because I think they realized, or at least policy thinkers realized, it cannot be stopped. And I think that dynamic that works in the way that governments reacted, especially for the Polynesian countries, is the influences of the conversations of the diaspora, which carries a particular currency, especially uh, back home. And so, yeah, it was initially overreaction, legislation, and then now it's sort of, let's work with it. <laughs> and on the vein of working with it, there's something called e-government or electronic government, which is about the potential for governments in Pacific Island countries and others to use digital technologies to communicate with citizens and businesses uh, and indeed with other government entities. So, uh, for instance, you could have telephone hotlines so people can phone up and get accurate, accurate reliable information about COVID-19, the measles or other health issues, uh, or they could be text message-based services, or indeed they could be internet-based services, including possibly things through, through social media. Uh, my my understanding, and I have looked into it a bit, and there has been some academic work on this, uh, is that e-government or electronic government is really in its infancy in the Pacific. Um, a lot of the e-government services that have been established are what's known as government-to-government -government or G-to-G type services. So it's about, for instance, government
government offices in, say, one part of the country being able to report by electronic means to the central office rather than having to post paper forms like they might have done in the past, that sort of thing. And G2G or government to government is, I suppose, the first step, if you will, on the journey towards electronic government where you might envisage the one of the later steps being a fully integrated internet-based system where a citizen or business owner could log in and do various things such as uh, renew their passport and pay their tax and check their vaccination status and a whole lot of other things in the one integrated portal that obviously would have to connect with various different government agencies. So that's obviously a long way away in most Pacific Island countries, but that is a potential benefit of the use of these services, albeit with the caveat that for those who are unable to access the digital service, whether it's uh, because they don't know about it or they speak a different language or they don't have internet access or whatever it might be. So there's also going to be divides and inequalities in terms of who can access these services. But there certainly are some potentials to make some of these things more efficient and also more cost effective for people who might otherwise need to hop on a ferry and then a bus or something like that to get to a government office to stand in a queue to request a paper form, whereas instead they could perhaps stay in the village and do the whole thing through an internet portal or a telephone call or something like that. Um, Nick, before, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot to say about what Amanda and Joppy just said, um, but I just wanted to also ask or add to what <laughs> to what your answer currently looks like. Um, I know that during the Samoan election, there was a blackout. There was a social media blackout on Facebook. Um, and I just wondered if you also had any insight into how that happened and how the Samoan government would have worked with Facebook to to do that. Yeah, happy to talk about that. And I have to, um, you know, give a um, big shout out actually to the um, Samoan Electoral Commission. Um, you know, when it comes to elections, we we really do um, invest quite a bit of time and um, relationship building in those. And Samoa, we spend a lot of time working with the Electoral Commission um, to understand the processes. And um, I think we were at the point where we were having weekly meetings with them, um, ensuring candidates knew how to use the services responsibly um, and also what our policies, our, what we call our community standards were, um, and allowing um, the Electoral Commission to come to us with um, with um, issues that they might have um, quite rapidly so we could deal with that. So I have to say it was a really great working relationship actually with them and they did an amazing job in an election that turned out to be quite, um, you know, went on for quite a long time. Um, but uh, blackout periods are nothing really new to us. I think New Zealand has quite a strict blackout period as well and a number of uh, Pacific countries do. So we work with them quite closely, um, the electoral commissions, to understand what the requirements are around the blackout periods. And then um, typically what happens is, is uh, we will um, provide the information to them that can allow candidates and others to temporarily disable their pages, um, which will then sort of remove the, the publishing new content. Uh, but also they will then either reach out to people directly themselves um, to sort of say, look, you, you're in breach of this piece of electoral law and ask them to remove it. And then they can come to us um, and then we work to respect the local law um, and then we will take the appropriate action to um, block that content from being viewed within um, within the country um, if it's flagged to us by an authority uh, that has the ability to do that, in which case it's mostly the Electoral Commission. So blackout periods are nothing 
uh, sort of new to us and um, Samoa did a, a great job in working with us on that. I just really quickly say the, um, you know, the the point around how governments are using um, social media, you know, Joe Pay's right, there is a, a developing understanding, I think, um, of the role of social media. I don't think we're fully out of the, um, the sort of concern around defamation, those sorts of things uh, yet, but um, I think uh, if you look at somewhere like Solomon Islands, um, where I think in 2021 there was a threat to ban um, uh, Facebook surveys done by, uh, again, the Chamber of Commerce there, said 93% of people opposed that. So you, you see the, um, you know, you see the difference between um, uh, how the, the public are generally um, viewing it. But broadly, you know, governments are using it around things like disaster preparedness. You're pushing out a lot of messaging from NDMOs um, to sort of get people prepared for cyclone season, those sorts of things. COVID, we've talked about um an interesting one around sort of tourism Fiji, which is a government um, entity that is um, really using it to tell Fiji's story globally again, coming out of COVID to sort of attract uh, visitors back because tourism so important. And I would say something that we are continuing to work on and would love to see more of is an increased government focus on safety and online safety across the Pacific. Um, and here I have to give Fiji a big um, congratulations. I think they're the only Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I was going to say Jopo would be happy, but you know Fiji has an online safety commission, um, and that you know it's still in its infancy and it's um, growing. But that even in of itself, having a centre within government that is really dedicated to looking at these issues and partnering with platforms is really important because it provides a lot of local context, it gives the general public somewhere to go. Um, so I think, you know, that that uh, office will develop, but it's a really good, um, it's a really good evolution of government's approaches to online safety. And to be frank, we'd love to see more focus on online safety across the Pacific from, from governments. In the face of the discussion about government and government's use of social media um, and elections, use of social media during elections, um, how how do you balance freedom of, of expression through social media platforms? Um, so allowing that freedom of expression on Facebook and criticism um, of governments and so on and so on. And then how do you balance that with the need to regulate? Um, it's a pretty broad question, but do you all have any thoughts on that? We can start with you, Amanda, please. It's certainly a tricky issue that governments all around the world are dealing with. And prior to social media, it was already a complex or a fine line kind of issue. Uh, in no country in the world, even the most open, would you have total freedom of expression. There's always been things such as concerns around defamation and libel and things like that. So you can't just say anything. You can't, um, in most societies, um, there's legislation against hate speech and so on, for instance. So in no country of the world is there complete freedom of expression where people can say um, draw publicly publish uh, or comment in in any way at all there's every uh, country has at least some form of restrictions I guess the challenges in the Pacific are you've got uh, quite a lot of small countries with um, relatively 
small governments. I mean, compared to the world stage, you know, they are countries with small economies and small populations and so on. Um, and so these individual countries are trying to work out some of these quite complex issues. And um, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, this is a very loaded question, so we can spend yeah. hours yeah. talking about it. But I think I'll just try and narrow down uh, three particular aspects that would be helpful. The first thing that I want to sort of prioritize in addressing this particularly very important issue is research. I don't think there's enough research that's supported in actually covering this topic and issue. Um, and part of that has to do with the context. Like in Fiji, the political context that we have makes it very difficult to do research in this particular regard. So I think other Pacific Island countries, Australia, New Zealand probably has a more fertile ground for nurturing research and having to unpack that very important question. And the research to then inform not only policy, but also inform specifically advocacy. I think advocacy is very important in that regard. And as men Nick has mentioned, uh, Online Safety Commission, there are particular authorities or bodies that are very useful in having to create an environment where people understand that their rights have particular limitations in, in ways. And it's good to have an expression of what you think, uh, but also to be cognizant of how what you uh, are expressing may affect the balance of your society. Uh, and in particular ways. And so that's always a difficult aspect to balance in that regard. But I think that speaks to the need for greater advocacy. And ultimately, because it's always going to come to the point of how do you control that? Uh, I, in my line of work, in my research, I, what I find works best is self-regulation and community regulation. So what that means is it's not necessarily good if we legislate everything, um, the law is not the solution to everything, but creating a culture of being more responsible uh, in terms of self-regulation, and especially in the Pacific, the communal aspect is very important in encouraging community self-regulation, so to speak. That works a lot better because you enforce yourself to be a bit more responsible, and also you take a personal responsibility in controlling what you intend to put out and to think about it a lot more. And so those three things, I think, are important um, in having to address that and balance it. And I think the least amount of government intervention in that, the better, because... <laughs> <laughs> as, as we've seen in the Pacific, the more the state has its hands in it, the more problems that come out of it. Nick, what are your thoughts? Oh, look, I think, it, I think it's been really covered very well by um, Amanda and Jope. And I think, um, you know, the only thing I would sort of add is that, <laughs> as Amanda said, you know, this is uh, globally, um, this is not unique to the Pacific, right? It's a, it's a, very complex, um, challenging um, policy question for governments all over the world. Um, uh, I think the piece I'd add, you know, in terms of what Jopo was saying, is a, a broad education initiatives um, uh, to, um, you know, help people understand how to sort of interact with this new technology and the ability to speak uh, freely um, and the opportunities that provides, but also the responsibilities that that also entails. Um, and I think lots of countries are starting to do that. There's some great stuff happening in Taiwan at the moment. There's some um, interesting things happening in New Zealand and, and other places. So there are there are some models that, you know, Pacific Island countries can uh, can look at. Um, the, you know, the, the our mission, as I've said, is to sort of give people voice, but also to bring people closer together. Um, and so uh, that sort of can sort of explain that 
conundrum in a, notch, a nutshell. So, um, you know, working on the education initiatives, um, I would really encourage people listening, you know, um, and, and I'm not trying to plug, uh, plug Facebook, but our community standards um, are incredibly, um, are incredibly comprehensive, um, uh, I guess, rules around uh, what we do and don't allow on the services. And when you go through those, you get a real understanding as to the thought, um, the um, local context, the expertise that has been put into developing them. And it really, in many cases, is trying to walk that line um, between giving people voice and um, in many ways trying to ensure that um, we have a focus on um, you know, stopping real world harm and imminent physical harm, those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it's a balancing act um, and uh, there's always more work to do. Um, but uh, certainly taking in local context as we as we do with different groups in the Pacific um, is really important to that to that development. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of community standards, Nick, I've been banned from boosting and I have no idea why, just so you know. I didn't do anything. <laughs> well, you can see something later. One thing that's interesting uh, that we roll out across the Pacific um, recently, particularly ahead of elections, is if you are wanting to advertise um, with respect mm -hmm. to things that might be deemed political or electoral issues, um, mm -hmm. you need to go through a registration process. And that's a whole, um, that's a sort of process that then. Uh, the, yeah. It's designed to try and stop foreign interference in elections. It's designed to yeah. uh, make sure democracies are kind of owned by the countries that are having the elections rather than interference yes. from abroad. So you may have been caught up in that, but by all means, Ellie, you should send me through, um, send it through to me. And I am going it. to. Are you trying to run for office or something? <laughs> no, is I'm that, not. Is that you... I'm just saying I didn't do anything. <laughs> I think I was posting up about, I think I was posting up about about one of our webinars. And it was about the Pacific and, I mean, this is going to lead into other discussion, but it was about the Pacific security threats. I think something like that was in, in the wording of the post, but we are not a political organization and I have been banned. And with regards to the registration process that you were just talking about, both of us were banned, as in Liam and I. Liam was offered the opportunity to go through the registration process and had to go get something signed by a JP. I have not been offered <laughs> that opportunity. There's no button that I can press to upload anything. So this is the appeals process. So right. this is what right. Well, now you, you've you got someone uh, on the podcast. This was the intent of bringing me onto the podcast. This this was the oh, real yeah. reason. <laughs> you do, do flick it through to me afterwards and we'll have a look. <laughs> Look, we've only got a couple more questions, but uh, before we went into those last questions, they're a little bit broad as well. I wanted to go back to what you were talking about, Dropper, with transnational communities. I think it's quite important. And if any of you have comments on it, I'll start with you, Jope. Um, How do you think you were saying that there was some discussion about, sorry, there was pushback on the governments being um sensitive to the idea of social media and part of it was because transnational communities or diaspora are communicating so strongly through social media platforms. Um, that's definitely something that I experienced as a person who grew up as in a transnational community. How do you think or what do you think the impact is of transnational communities through social media? Uh, that's a very good question. I really like the way you've uh, layered it because I think it's an untapped potential in terms of uh, Australia's own strategic interest in the region. 
especially in terms of values, democratic values. Uh, and what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when Pacific Island communities move over to Australia, they clearly become sensitized in what are the values of what Australia clearly sees as important. And part of that has to do with the way uh, Australians see their democracy. And that has a spillover effect on the diaspora, the way they also value their own democracy or idealize uh, what their democracies should be like. And it has a spillover effect as well because the critical mass of online discussions in Australia is so much bigger. So the frequency of it filtering into the Pacific Island countries is a lot more stronger. And with the values that comes with that is also the expectation that those values should materialize in the places where we come from, our places of birth. And so I see it as something that's important because, and also a huge opportunity because it also allows for people from a civic point of view or a civic engagement to pressure their governments to do better to be better, to do things differently. And you can tell that that shift has been happening uh, because of the fact that the Pacific Island people in the Pacific are not only speaking back, but also Pacific Island people around the world are speaking back to their governments to change with the time, to change with the wave that's coming that they can't stop. And so the dynamics of that has a technical uh, part, which has to do with digital technologies, the way the algorithms work, of course. It also has to do with values of Pacific communities in the diaspora. And of course, there's a potential there of bridging the values. And this is also, if I may say so as well, this is part of the reason why Australia has significant soft power in the Pacific region is because of the diaspora uh, and how the communications impresses upon our people that there are better things that we can have, that there are better values, that we deserve greater respect as citizens in our countries. And so part of that has to do with this new frontier that I think is going to be very exciting and I hope is going to be embraced in the region. Eliora, if I could add, please, that there's a crucial importance of the infrastructure that underpins what Jope was just talking about, because international communication is so essential to contemporary life. And we do have members of the Pacific diaspora in Australia, New Zealand and elsewhere who want to be able to communicate with their relatives, their loved ones in Pacific Island countries. And there are a number of Pacific Island countries that have either no undersea internet cable or only one. And as we experienced when there was a massive volcano that erupted near Tonga earlier this year, and Tonga had for some weeks no international undersea internet cable, it also meant there were no telephone calls. This was very distressing for members of the diaspora in Australia, New Zealand, Wales, Canada, Japan, and various other countries who were worried about their loved ones post-volcanic eruption in Tonga and various Tongan islands. And unable to communicate with them. For days and days, they were unable to find out how their relatives were. They were unable to make international phone calls. People in the country were unable to make international phone calls or receive them. Uh, and of course, the internet, social media platforms and so on were also down. And I think this highlighted to us all the importance uh, of the infrastructure itself. Uh, and I guess that communication, daily communication that we so often take for granted. Um, Nick, do you have any insight from an organisational perspective on how sort of Pacific Islanders outside might interact with the region? Yeah, and firstly, I just say I completely agree with Amanda in terms of, um, you know, the infrastructure underpinning it all. Um, Tonga was somewhat unprecedented, right, in terms of um, the communication infrastructure basically being severed 
um, and certainly we saw that as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, Jopo is totally on the money here with respect to um, the um, sharing of values, I guess, um, over borders, um, the importance of social media and connecting with family and friends. Um, it's hugely important for the diaspora. Um, I think there's an element in that which goes back to Joe Poy's other Joe Poy's other point around, um, you know, com community regulation and self-regulation and how the um, the influence of the diaspora can play a role in some of that in terms of digital um, literacy. Um, you you saw and you see um, a lot of interaction um, with diaspora and electoral processes. Certainly very important in the Samoan. Um, in the Samoan election, um, you, I'm sure you'll see the same thing happen in Fiji. Um, you, I mean, you had uh, the Electoral uh, Commission of Fiji in um, Sydney and New Zealand recently registering voters. So there's obviously a lot of a lot of people there who will who will be voting. Um, so, yeah, I think um, hu hugely important. Um, agree with Jope around it being a sort of source of untapped potential in many different ways, um, and um, really important for a lot of those sort of um, things like community self-regulation or even what we were talking about before around female representation and those sorts of things you know um, really important stuff and we've seen that play out in Samoa. Hmm. Um, Nick what role do you see Facebook playing in addressing issues of media freedom in the Pacific? Um, I'm just talking Facebook bans um, yeah uh, well, you, you see a lot of media outlets um, using uh, Facebook. Um, we have uh, specific teams at Facebook. They're called our News Partnerships Team, and they partner with uh, publishers around the world. Um, we have uh, um, uh, a, a project which is really focused on um, journalism and protection of journalists. As you can imagine, we, we operate in every country, almost every country. So um, our experience in this area is reasonably, reasonably vast. Um, and so we have set up those kinds of programs. You know, recently we had um, a group of Fijian uh, publishers come to our office in Sydney and we had a great session with them uh, as part of uh, an ABC um, uh, international development program. They came and we had a great session with them uh, just talking about the use of the services and the different uh, levels of support they can access, all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, we sort of gear up quite a lot in this space. And again, and I know I keep banging on about this, but it comes back to that that mission around giving people voice. And we rely quite heavily on international human rights norms and all those sorts of things. Um, and media, media freedom is a really important part of that while also, um, you know, trying to respect local norms and customs as well. Okay, cool. I, so, sorry, Madden Jopé, what role do you think, uh, not just social media platforms, but governments, media in general, um, what do you think they have to do to ensure that we have a safe and open online space in the Pacific? Um, I think for these authorities, the first thing is to consult uh, and part, uh, I think that has to come first, consulting effectively the main stakeholder in this whole dynamic are the users. That's one thing that in the, how many years now, it's almost like a decade of Facebook uh, being in the Pacific and examining all these dynamics is 
Pacific governments haven't come to the understanding of let's ask the users what exactly do they think, what are they using it for, how do they see it. That's the first thing. How can we work with the users? Uh, and it's unfortunate that authorities are just talking to each other about how to control it or we need to do it this way. So, I, I mean, the reason why I'm bringing up consulting is because an important part of that is research, to really research and understand how the users themselves also socialize with the technology, socialize with each other through the technology. In that regard, it could really unpack avenues with which the governments can actually tap into strengthening policies, which some of them have already done, but specifically just from a um, disaster communications effort. But in the long run, to really unpack a variety of areas that uh, policies, approaches can be built from within the communities and from within the country. And so consulting and research, I think, is important in that regard. Uh, on the issue of um, the media outlets, I think an interesting trend that um, is really quite fascinating to me is the fact that um, media outlets at one point were feeling threatened by social media, specifically Facebook, that Facebook was going to replace media organizations. But now if you look at the analytics online, majority of where people get their news are from uh, Facebook pages, which are effectively media organization pages. And so they've been able to transform into that space. And that came with them having to observe exactly uh, what their audience want. And I think that's a huge example of listening to your audience or the users, what exactly, consulting them, like how do they see it and how can they work with the authorities involved, which is very important, yeah. Eliora, mainstream media outlets such as those Joppe is referring to tend to be businesses commercial radio stations, commercial television stations, newspapers for which people need to pay money to purchase them, the printed copies, that kind of thing. And in the Pacific, we mentioned the small populations earlier. So media organisations, indeed, they're mainly businesses, already sort of had a tight ship that they had to run in terms of making sure that they were able to cover the wages of the journalists and so on and, uh, and keep things going. The COVID-19 pandemic and related economic downturns has been uh, a very significant impact on media organisations. There are a number of media outlets that have reduced staff hours, that have um, perhaps laid staff off or uh, we risk uh, some actually closing down. And I think this is a really important issue. I, I know you want us to talk about social media, but I think it's very important that we have a thriving and diverse media environment in the Pacific, uh, as distinct from the social media that we've been mainly talking about today. But as Joppe was talking about the media, I thought it was worth making that point. Just talking about, I wanted to bring up freedom of expression again, just in relation to specific Hoban topics in the Pacific, um, such as China and Indonesia. How can we utilize social media to allow a safe space for Pacific nations in the face of all of the external um, interest <laughs> at the moment? Well, I could, I could say three things really quickly. One is that um, it, it's against our policy to have a fake account on Facebook, right? And so anybody can report anything on Facebook, including accounts, and we will look at those and remove those if they're determined to be fake. We also remove billions every quarter 
uh, or fake out via artificial intelligence. So, and it's not just the name of the account, it's the behavior of the account, all those sorts of things. So that's the, that's the first piece. And that's in many ways, a very effective way of dealing with um, some of these challenges that you're referring to. Um, the other piece is that we publish every month a, um, a, a report uh, around um, what we would call coordinated and authentic behavior. Uh, where we would take down networks that are operating to um, influence, um, sort of run influence operations, and that may be through fake accounts as well, uh, but it may not be. So there's a there's quite a lot of transparent data that we produce on those uh, those takedowns as well. Um, and then the other thing is around elections and election integrity and political advertising. So we have potentially this is the thing you've been caught up in, Ali, is the uh, is the thing where you have to register as being in the country where you are running an ad um, and then that sort of uh, and you have to register who you are and provide an email address and phone number all those sorts of things because we're trying to make sure that you are who you say you are when you're engaging on these particular types of issues but I agree with Jope in that a lot more research is needed in this space um, and I think um, you know being uh, putting it sort of gently I think given the current climate um, uh, across the Pacific and the current um, challenges and issues that are uh, popping up. Um, with respect to your question, Ellie, I think more people need to be looking at the digital space and the cyberspace in this because there is a lot of talk on um, on uh, um, the sort of physical aspects of this, but actually people should be looking a bit more at the digital space as well. Uh, yeah, we'll give it to Nick, but it's an interesting question about uh, all the external influences yes, being online and leveraging hot yeah. button political issues on social media if there's a role that uh, Meta can play, especially in the competition of all of these different uh, set of interests from yeah, external on the Pacific and in the digital landscape. Is there a role that Meta um, can see itself in having to make a, a space that does not become dominated. I think in instances like um, the West Papuan issue, mm -hmm. when Indonesia set up these little bots on Twitter, mm -hmm. or at least particular counter campaigns, and it just sort of escalated, but uh, and there are tendencies for that to happen similarly as well on Facebook from time to time, uh, and that can kind of antagonize sensitivities in the Pacific or create particular perceptions? Is there specific roles with which Pacific Islanders can report these particular things and or, or are there forms of engagement that helps uh, sort of maintain a balance? Thank you again to our guests, Nick McDonnell, Amanda Watson, and Joke Tarei for joining us on this two-part episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find a link to this episode on our website, pacificsecurity.net. You can always find us on Facebook at Australia Pacific Security College or on Twitter at APSC underscore ANU. And you can listen to the Pacific Wayfinder on Google, Apple, and Spotify podcasts. The music or the theme song that you're listening to is Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And please tune in next time for more discussions on the Pacific Wayfinder.